Hello and welcome to the September 11th edition of Ukraine and Belarus Without Hype, where we take a look at the biggest stories of the week from Ukraine, Belarus, and the region. I'm Romeo Kokratsky, and beside me is my colleague Maria Romanenko. Hello. This week started off with a shocking story that sounds as if it was ripped from the pages of a thriller novel. The broad daylight abduction of Maria Kolesnikova, one of the trio of women who became the face of the Belarusian opposition movement, alongside likely presidential-elect Svetlana Tikhonovska and Veronika Tsapkala. As protests in Belarus enter their second month with no signs of stopping, Kolesnikova remains the only one of the trio to still be physically in Belarus, as both Tikhonovska and Tsapkala have been exiled by the ruling regime of Alexander Lukashenko. But not for the Lukashenko's regime's lack of trying. On Monday morning, a reader sent a message to Belarusian media outlet Tutdapai about their witnessing of armed men in an unmarked black van abduct Kolesnikova around noon in central Minsk. Not long after, two other Belarusian opposition members, the press secretary of the Belarusian Opposition National Coordination Council, Anton Radnyankov, and NCC acting director Ivan Kravtsov, also fell out of contact. Their absence sparked a flurry of speculation on social media, but it wasn't until late at night that the news came out, with Radnyankov and Kravtsov appearing in Ukraine, though without Kalesnikova. As Radnyankov and Kravtsov tell it, they were also abducted by the regime forces and were shuttled between different government facilities the entire day, sometimes in a hood and cuffs, before they were finally shipped off to the Ukrainian border. There, they were given back their passports and forcibly bundled into Radnyankov's car in the no-man's land between the Ukrainian and Belarusian border checkpoints and told to drive to Ukraine. But Kalesnikova, say the NCC members, in a stunning act, tore up her own Belarusian passport and crawled out of the locked car through an open window, running back to the Belarusian side. By tearing up her passport, she removed her ability to cross the border, though returning to the Belarusian side resulted in her immediate detention for what the regime called an illegal attempt to cross the border. But her fellow NCC members safely made it to Ukraine. Kolesnikova, through her lawyer, sent a chronology of her abduction to a state committee and urged them to open an investigation into the matter. In her statement, she says that she was threatened with statements like, if she refused to voluntarily leave Belarus, she would leave in pieces and imprisonment of up to 25 years and accidents in prison. And she was only driven to the Ukrainian border after refusing to comply with the regime's threats. She is currently being held, this time officially, at a penitentiary near Minsk. But the opposition is still attempting to continue its work, and they may have gotten a boost today with the Lithuanian parliament voting to recognize Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya as the president of Belarus and called the NCC the only legitimate representatives of the Belarusian people. And they called on harsher sanctions on the illegal leader Lukashenko of Belarus for his continued thwarting of Belarusian popular will. Repression against Belarusian protesters continues, with 45 forcibly detained at a rally on Tuesday and protesting Belarusian students told that their participation may quote-unquote complicate their university admissions. And I also want to mention that today is Sihanovskaya's birthday, and students at a university in Minsk came to record a happy birthday song for the likely president-elect. In Ukraine, however, the news is still dire. A ceasefire negotiated a little over a month ago seems to have been shattered in what the armed forces called an aimed attack. While occupying forces had previously shot in the direction of Ukrainian position, they would quote-unquote shoot to miss according to the armed forces. 
This time, however, occupying forces shot an automatic grenade launcher directly at Ukrainian forces, which resulted in the death of a Ukrainian soldier, which was a move that the armed forces said was quote-unquote directly on the way to sever the agreement. However, the Ukrainian side did not return fire. Instead, armed forces command decided to give the occupying forces a second chance to preserve their ceasefire, though they noted that any subsequent uh, attack on Ukrainian positions would be answered with quote-unquote all available strengths and equipment. A second attack attack announced by the occupying forces was cancelled, though they continued to attack Ukrainian positions. This may signal the end of the what Ukraine previously called comprehensive ceasefire. And in further signs of failed diplomacy, a planned joint occupier and organization for security and cooperation in Europe inspection of Ukrainian positions has been cancelled. The inspection, announced by Ukraine's presidential administration, was intended as a way to keep the ceasefire from falling apart, according to the administration. And the announced inspection was soundly criticized by segments of Ukrainian society. Opposition party Hulis claimed that the inspections carried, quote-unquote, signs of high treason for which officials of any level must be held accountable according to current legislation. And protests against the decision have sprung up, with one such protest appearing under the gates of Zelensky's current residence in Kiev. As for the cancellation, the administration said in a statement that they received new, quote-unquote, contradictory requirements from the occupying forces. Among which were new points of inspection, photo and video recordings, and signing entirely new agreements. Leonid Kravchuk, Ukraine's first president and the current head of Ukraine's delegation to the Trilateral Contact Group, said that these new requirements quote-unquote grossly violate the agreements reached on September 9th. Unfortunately, these aggressive actions and agreement violations have not dissuaded some Ukrainian public figures from working with Russians, openly or not. Specifically, we're talking about media oligarch and head of pro-Russian opposition party Viktor Medvedchuk, a personal friend of Russian President Vladimir Putin, and Putin is actually the godfather of Medvedchuk's daughter. News surfaced a week and change ago that Medvedchuk had traveled to occupied Crimea in what his press secretary called a vacation, and according to an investigation by investigative journalism outlet Slistva.info, took with him a Ukrainian police escort. Coincidentally or not, Medvedchuk's visit to Crimea overlapped with Putin's own visit to the occupied peninsula. There is, unsurprisingly, not a lot known about Medvedchuk's visit, nor about the basis of his police protection. Officially, it's believed that the three joined Medvedchuk's visit to Crimea by taking a quote-unquote holiday, though this information is being checked on suspicion of forgery. And while the police said that there was no restriction on officers traveling to occupied Crimea, it isn't clear if they were being personally paid by Medvedchuk for their troubles. And speaking of Russian agents, another Ukrainian MP has been accused of being one, this time Andrei Drkach, who has been providing allegedly compromising information to right-wing U.S. politicians on the family of U.S. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. He released portions of a phone call between Biden and former Ukrainian President Pedro Poroshenko and met with U.S. President Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, when the latter visited the country. The U.S. Treasury Department has sanctioned Durkacz, calling him a decades-old Russian agent who was, quote-unquote, maintaining close connections with the Russian intelligence services. The U.S. Treasury is also accusing Durkacz of attempting to meddle in the U.S. elections and is moving to freeze the MP's assets on U.S. soil. Durkacz, for his part, alleged that he'll be releasing, quote-unquote, new shocking facts about democratic corruption at a press conference next week. Though all of his shocking facts so far have proven to be either overhyped at best and utterly unsupported allegations at worst. And he also added that he will be suing the U.S. Treasury Department. 
And to tell us more about this subject, I spoke to the Kyiv Post reporter and uh, my former colleague, Matt Kupfer, who's been following this story for some time. Let's hear what he had to say. So the Treasury statement mentions that his decades-long service as a Russian agent. Uh, do you know if there are any examples of this uh, in his background? Well, so when the Treasury releases a statement like that, of course, I'm not in the, in the government, so I can't say, you know, what's going on there. But my guess is that probably this comes at least in part from U.S. intelligence. So I would suspect that, that there aren't necessarily clear examples of a sort of a smoking gun there, but that probably there's U.S. intelligence indicating this. In terms of his, in terms of his long history of, of sort of working as a Russian agent, I mean, I, I think we can look at his, his background, which certainly paints, a, 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 I think we can look at his background, which certainly provides a, a large amount of circumstantial evidence. You know, he studied at the, um, at the Academy of the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation, the former higher school of the KGB. Um, he was part of the party of regions uh, of ousted President Viktor Yanukovych, which was a pro-Russian party. He, um, I mean, he, he has a long history in politics and also in media and likely a lot of connections. So it's not outlandish to suspect that he has ties to Russia. Um, I myself haven't dug so deep into his entire history, but um, my guess is that most likely U.S. intelligence had some kind of information on him from their sources, from diplomats, you know, that kind of information. But as far as I understand, that information has not been released yet. Do you no, think of it course not. Of course not. Um, you know, I think most likely not. Generally... I, I can't speak from such a great knowledge of how the, the U.S. government internal processes work, but generally when they have that kind of intel, they don't necessarily release more than they have to, I think. Um, so Dukarch is kind of a point man for Trump's allies who have come to Ukraine in search of this mythical Biden corruption evidence. What has he uncovered and what does it really show? For example, maybe the Biden-Poroshenko audio that he leaked? So um, Dirkach hasn't actually uncovered much in terms of... Uh, in terms of so-called compromat, compromising materials. He, he claims that Joe Biden engaged in corruption in Ukraine, um, and he released these supposed conversations between Biden when he was vice president and then president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko. But these tapes are not a smoking gun. There is no true evidence in them that Biden did anything corrupt. There's really not a lot there. I, um, I remember listening to his first press conference when he released these tapes, and it was really not super exciting stuff. He would, he would play a clip, and then he'd say something about corruption, or he'd play another clip, and he'd say, look, George Soros is influencing Ukraine in an undue way, and it just wasn't there. You know, it, it really looked like he was kind of hyping it quite a bit, and there, there just wasn't much there. As for the tapes themselves, they sound real in the sense that it does sound like um, Biden and Poroshenko speaking. They obviously have been edited in some way, um, but is the core of them uh, real conversations? They could be. I mean, how we got those conversations, if so, is another matter that's, that's there's not a clear answer to it. I've also seen some people suggest that it's possible that one with the right technology and, you know, say a sample of Biden's voice over the phone and Poroshenko's voice uh, just regularly could recreate those um, those conversations and make false recordings. Although 
I'm, I myself am a little skeptical of that without hearing from some kind of expert in audio recording about it because uh, it seems like the result would not be guaranteed to be super realistic in that case. And as you previously said yourself, like he's had ties to uh, different, like to pro-Russian uh, parties, such as, you know, the opposition party for life as run by Medvedchuk. Uh, but currently he's a non-functional MP. And do you think there's um, any reason, like it can be explained somehow, why is he not, why is he not? like tied to any political parties at the moment? You know, I don't have the answer to that. I'd have to go back and look at how he was elected this time. I mean, um, people, uh, lawmakers get elected in different ways. They get elected in single member districts. They get elected on party lists. He was clearly elected not on a party list if he's not in, in a party. I, I would not necessarily say, though, that his lack of a membership to a party should mean that he has no political alliances or no um, political orientation, I think it's more likely just a strategic or procedural reason why. And finally, um, I think, um, are there any hints that uh, the Kutch may face Ukrainian uh, legal consequences for his designation as a Russian a agent? The U.S. is one of Ukraine's foremost partners, after all, and a statement like this might carry some weight. Well, I don't see that happening yet. And I'd say two reasons why. Number one, I certainly haven't heard a lot of, um, of you know, politicians commenting on this so much uh, so far. But number two, someone saying you're a Russian agent, it's, I mean, being a Russian agent obviously would not be something that, that should be acceptable to the government of Ukraine. But it's not, also, it's not as if the U.S. government provided that um, information on how they know this extremely publicly. So I don't know. I mean, Dirkach is, is a, um, is a well-connected figure in Ukraine, regardless of what his politics are. He's been, in, he's been in, uh, in politics for a long time. He has connections to the media. I mean, he has a media company. His father was the uh, former head of the security service of Ukraine. This is not some minor guy who can just easily be sort of, you know, some flimsy charges can be thrown at him and he can be, you know, sent to jail. I mean, I think, I think he's someone who would be tougher for them to take on. Um, so that's, I mean, that's all I can say. You know, when he, when he released these, um, these recordings, uh, the, uh, you know, these audio recordings, nothing about them was a smoking gun. And to me, not only were they not a smoking gun, but they didn't seem like they would be very useful in U.S. politics. It was obviously an attempt to. It was obviously an attempt to influence the election, but it wasn't a, the strongest one I could imagine. Because frankly, all the things he was saying, all these claims had already been hurled at Biden before. They'd already kind of had their moment in the sun. They led to Trump's. They were part of the the whole situation that led to Trump's impeachment. Trump wasn't impeached, but these you know these claims they've been debunked. Yeah, some people still believe them. But they're also not new. So what, when you think about American voters, they're going into the election already having heard about this stuff. And here Dirkach shows up with these new recordings, and he's kind of saying the same thing, just in different ways and with some other claims. And these, you know, these recordings, I don't think they had a huge, um, they didn't make huge waves in the U.S. or in Ukraine, for that matter, simply because they weren't really new. We've already been there, been there, done that, been there, seen that. And... Um, at the same time, in the U.S., Trump has a lot of, I mean, is facing a lot of challenges at the moment. Um, 
the coronavirus uh, pandemic, which hasn't been handled exceedingly well by any measure. There is, um, you know, people leaving his administration, publishing books. There is this uh, report that he said um, insulting things about, you know, U.S. uh, soldiers fallen in battle and wounded uh, uh, veterans. I mean, there's a lot of negative stuff coming out for him. So when I looked at Dirkacha's new tapes, I felt that we weren't necessarily seeing something extremely effective in, in the U.S. election. And that made me also wonder something else. What's the point of this? And I have to say, listening to the tapes, um, it often seemed like they were not good for Biden, but not really that bad. But the person who really came off looking badly in them, and it was Poroshenko, because he looked kind of subservient and very eager to please Biden. And to the electorate that I think would support Dirkach and that would support some of the pro-Russian parties, the, uh, I mean, if we're talking a sort of pro-Russian electorate, um, some of these sort of, uh, I, don't know, I wouldn't necessarily call them conspiracy theories, but some of these negative characterizations of the Ukrainian leadership can be quite effective. So, for example, um, I've had on a few occasions taxi drivers um, basically criticize politicians when I'm riding in the car with them. Unsolicited, they start talking about politics with me because I'm American. And some of the things they'll say are like, you know, this was back in the day when Poroshenko was still president. Uh, I, I was told Poroshenko is always he's always thanking everyone. He says to, to Americans, to the British, to any foreign politician, thank you for coming, Ukraine. Thank you for helping us. Thank you. Thank you. He might as well get down on his knees and thank them. And, you know, when I heard that at that time, it was just kind of like a very negative kind of like um, uh, it was a negative view of Poroshenko from like someone who sort of seems offended for their for their country being, you know, being, from their view, being at the mercy of the West. And at the time, I just took it as, yeah, it's kind of one of these pro-Russian sort of conspiracy theory-oriented voters, because this guy told me some conspiracy theories, too. But when I, when I listened to the Dirkach recordings, I couldn't help thinking that maybe this is actually aimed at those people, too, because... Um, it did seem to play on that same sense of like our country is being externally controlled. You know, that idea of external control, as they'd say in Russian, that that shows up quite a bit in the narratives of the pro-Russian uh, parties. And I raise this for another reason. You know, Dirkach says that he got these recordings from investigative journalists. That seems pretty unlikely. A lot of them were published on a site called Leaks. Uh, that supposedly publishes leaks from the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. But Naboo Leaks looks pretty much to be a site connected to Dirkach. And um, we know that because also, you know, it's, it's um, despite being an English language site, it was, it was registered in a, it was a WordPress that was uh, Ukrainian. I mean, the, the menu is in Ukrainian, so that's one that it connects it to Ukraine. But also, Dirkach was out there saying the phrase, Nabuliks in, in, in Russian and Ukrainian long before this site was well known to anyone, which kind of tells you that he's been, I mean, that's not a common phrase in, in Ukrainian or Russian. He's been aware of this long before it was anything of significance in politics. So, um, so he seems to be pretty closely involved in this. And then where did these recordings come from? One of the people who's claimed these recordings is Oleksandr Nishenko, a fugitive Ukrainian lawmaker. Um, and he's now somewhere in Europe. He, um, he was fighting extradition to Ukraine. Last we heard about him, he was, um, 
the Germany declined to extradite him, but they also told him to get out of the country. And now he's still in, in Europe somewhere. Um, Anishinaabe claimed to have received these recordings and passed them to Dirkach in an interview with Sputnik, which is a Russian state news uh, agency. You know, I can't say that for sure that Anishinaabe is telling the truth that it was him, but one thing I can say is that if you look at the contents of the recording and kind of how, how they mainly seem to take aim at Poroshenko, with whom Anishinaabe has a grudge. I mean, he left Ukraine after a falling out with Poroshenko. It does kind of make sense that maybe they could have come from him. And I, if I remember correctly, he said he wanted to send them to the U.S., but in the end, he ended up passing them to, uh, he was arrested in Europe, so he passed them to Dirkach for publication. I can't endorse, I can't say that he's telling the truth for sure, but I think it's also not an absurd to think that he could be involved, given how these recording, how these recordings sound, how they see, who they seem to be targeting. To me, at least, it's a question that's worth discussing. That was Matt Cooper, a journalist with the Kiev Post. That's it for this week. If you like the podcast, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your ratings and reviews really help us out. And this is far from our only product. Check out our YouTube videos by searching for Hermansky International. And currently, we're producing a new series called Explain Ukraine, where we talk about some of the uniqueness of Ukrainian life for the non-Ukrainian audience. And you can also sign up for our daily newsletter by following the link in our description. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Search for Hermansky International and on Twitter at, at Hermansky. Thank you so much for being with us today. And please don't forget to rate us. Music.